Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Uh, I'm Jeff Tierney. I'm a faculty member at the Institute. I've been here since 1998. Before I was at Catholic University for many years at Johns Hopkins and UVA. Then I spent 18 years in the government. Not only did I choose this topic because I think it's important, but the loss of France occurred in 1940. That's not the only event that occurred in 1940, as you well know. It also happens to be the year of my birth. I was born three months before France fell. I don't remember I'm here describing. I do remember a little bit about Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, there was some confusion in the living room. Uh, why did I choose this particular topic? Uh, well, I first chose it because, although I have been teaching history of international relations since 1966, off and on, 20 years in government. And uh, I consider this to be a very important time. When it occurred, I am told, or I've read, that it was considered to be the most important event of the century. Well, that was by people who were there and who considered it to be personal. I don't think it was probably the most important event of the century, but I think it was in the top three. I consider the most important event of the century to be June 28, 1914 when the entire roof caved in on the world. In fact, the loss of France is a direct result of the First World War, because everything is a direct result of the First World War. And uh, America, Russia, Britain, and France, and Germany, and Argentina all had effects through the First World War. Germany lost immediately. France lost 20 years later, and Germany lost five years after France. The Soviet Union lost in 1991. What if France had won? What if they did the same thing they did in 1914, 25 years earlier? What if they held the Germans? They had a bigger army, they had equipment, I don't believe, and I don't think most people do, that it was a hardware issue. It was a moral issue and a political issue and a sociological issue. Why did the army fail? Well, if, well the army reflected society, as I would help to, hope, hope to demonstrate. I wonder if uh, France won, or France helped. I was looking at the headlines. I was going to show them today, but I didn't feel like doing film, the headlines blared, worse, New York Times, Washington Post, I went to the library, I looked around, all headlines for weeks and weeks. It was like the First World War, I used to use headlines and look at the New York Times and so forth. What would have happened if France had held uh, the Nazis? You think the Germans would have invaded the Soviet Union if they couldn't conquer France? You think they would have declared war on uh, the USA? Uh, you know, Adolf Hitler, a corporal in the German army, declared war on the two superpowers within six months. 
He never touched one of them. And the other one, he got to the outskirts of Moscow, and then it was all hell. He would have done that if he couldn't defeat France. No, I don't believe so. I don't believe it could have been possibly that the Second World War would have not occurred if France had helped. Uh, but it didn't. And why didn't it? There's controversy, of course. What else would there be if a country like France uh, goes down the tubes in six weeks and twenty? Five years earlier, never went down the tubes in four years of the greatest carnage in the history of the world. So how could 20 years later the same people collapse overnight? I don't know. I know I do, but I, it's, it's very uh, mysterious. And at the time, and even to this day, it's like anything else. The Civil War is still being debated. What does uh, what does loss mean when you lose a country? What do you what happens? Is it relevant? Do you think the United States has experienced losing itself? It almost did at the beginning, and it came back close at Gettysburg to losing itself, being cut in half and then carved up out west. It would have been nothing. What is it? Does it mean? Is, is it even relevant today? Do you think anybody thinks about uh, losing the United States or their country or what? Well, did you ever read the, the Washington Post? Pick up this morning's issue and look at the page one. For several years now, Washington Post has reminded the country on a daily and weekend basis that we might lose. The top of the fold, it says, democracy dies. Ooh. In darkness. And they imply that the lights are being put out by the lighthouse. But they don't say that. Oh, no, they, they say it all the time, but they don't say it in the expression. Democracy dies in darkness. That's a continuous reminder that the stakes are existential. Because they think the president is going to destroy the country. Hmm. During the 1950s, uh, the entire uh, foreign policy establishment in the United States, if you are old enough to remember, as I am, uh, felt very, very bitter to the Truman administration, which was a great foreign policy administration for Europe, historic, because it lost China. The entire generation of the 1950s, the Republican Party, had in its platform the loss of China was attributed to Harry Truman and the Foreign Service. Like they could lose it from Washington. A civil war had been going on for decades. Doesn't matter whether it's true or not. I don't think it is. I think it's ridiculous. But uh, it was believed. And if it's believed, it's relevant. And it was a very firm background to the Vietnam War. If you lose China, you're going to lose Vietnam, you're going to lose Korea, you lose domino theory, and all hell breaks loose. And the whole world's lost out of a fabrication. 
boss is, is relevant. Just the other day, I think it was yesterday, a presidential candidate <coughs> said that the President of the United States is a, I quote the President, the candidate, I won't mention any names, but uh, old man. He said the President of the United States is an existential threat. He hasn't acted quickly enough. He's been two years. Give some time, I suppose. Puts them in the same category as Jefferson Davis, Joseph Stalin, Reginald Khrushchev, Hitler, and John Wilkes Booth. Yes, there is real concern about losing a country. Caught hyperbole, fine. Exaggeration, which is quite apparent. But uh, I have an article that I published here on our website. We, I'm sure you all have scanned the website for our articles, and it's a summary. It was which came out last month uh, on the idea of this meeting. Countries can be lost, but what does lost mean? Where are the examples? Lost is past tense. It's gone. Lose is temporary. Where's my wallet? Well, it's in the corner. It's a verb. Most countries have one all the battles, the lost the war. It's very characteristic for countries to win all at first and also it was a war. Ask the Confederacy, ask Japan, ask Germany. They all won the battles. Somehow, somewhere. As late as 1864, it was uncertain as to whether the North would win, and the uh, opposition, George McClellan, had he won, the Confederacy would have won, probably. That far deep into it. He was the commander-in-chief of the Union at first. Others lose battles and win wars, such as the Soviet Union and the Union, the American Union. What is the consequence of lost? That's permanent. It's disappearance. There's 193 countries in the UN None of them have, are lost, but what are the countries that have been lost? Well, the Roman Empire, Athens, Sparta, I don't know. But I find that rather than going into the consequences of the loss, it's more important to go to uh, anticipate the uh, actions that led up to it. So Rome fell. We have to know the reasons rather than the consequences. The consequences are obvious. Not very good. The reasons are very complicated, and the consequences are not really applicable. Disappearance isn't really too interesting to apply. But causation, if there's patterns or if there's any kind of, as uh, Richard said in his opening remarks, uh, history does repeat itself. Thank you, uh, George Santayana. 
That disappearance may be tragic, but is empty unless we know why. So, anyway. So, what happens when countries uh, lose? What happens when France lost for the, for the war? Countries don't die a natural death like humans and animals. They don't just disappear after 75. I hope not. Or after 79. I was born in 1940. They either die from within or from without or normally a combination. It's very difficult to exclude as compartmentalize either one. The consensus, so that they either get murdered or they commit suicide. If you would analyze the uh, American experience and almost being lost, it would be a case of suicide. A civil war is an internal war, it's suicide. Countries lose by suicide. Normally, they're murdered, as Marek, who uh, will be coming down shortly, if I finish, uh, and they disappear, but they can rise again, as Poland did. You know, how many times has Poland gone down? Ah, almost all the time. Uh, so they're either die from within or die from without, or it's always a combination. Uh, what is the case of France? The consensus is, and by the way, before I go any further, this book here is unknown to the American public, probably. It was written by a Frenchman. It tells the story of why France lost. It was written in the summer of 1940 by Mark Block. He was a, a soldier in the First World War and he participated as a soldier in his 40s in the five weeks it took for France to fall between May 10th and June 27th. It was written in the summer of 1940 and he, it was published in 1948. It's called Strange Defeat. He was executed by the Germans. He was a resistor in 1944. It is, I, I am tempted to quote from it, but I have to restrain myself because if you want to know why the immediate biography, autobiography of France, you read this one. It is an indictment of the entire society, himself included. It is an indictment of the morale of the class divisions, of the economy, of the birth rate. At 40 million, Germany had 70 and heading towards 80 million. The indictment of the military. I may quote a bit from it. I, I will unquote a little bit, but I'm not, I don't want to take too much time. But the general consensus about France falling is, a, is an internal suicidal thing, rather than simply hardware, technology. Although that contributed to it, but what contributed to the lack of a response and the bad response that the army made, it is in the root 
primary cause, sociological. Sociological. Uh, France, France was used to losing. There was Waterloo, and then France was restored. That's the title of Henry's book, A World Restored. France was restored to greatness by the Congress of Vienna. France lost in 1871. <clears throat> and in the Demetine, it lost two provinces, Alsace Lorraine. But in the inter period between 71 and 1914, France was vigorous and able and willing to get those provinces back and to put on a very powerful offense called E-L-A-N, Elan, as, as uh, drummed into the soldiers uh, before 1914. It was a very vigorous, aggressive society, and it got the provinces back in 1919. And it was the most powerful country in the world in 1919. Germany was, as you know, maybe from the Versailles Treaty, Germany was prostate. No, prostrate. Down. Yes. Uh, it's kind of unusual for a country that powerful and that victorious to go down so fast. It doesn't happen very often. You could say Spain owned Cuba and the Philippines for hundreds of years and lost them in hours in 1998 because Spain was you know, way past its ability to hold on to these such distant lands in the United States. The United States took the Philippines over in a, in a few hours. And I believe that the Battle of Manoa Bay was staged, quite frankly. This is why I read that it was a farce. The Navy surrendered, but didn't want to look bad to the home. That's a, I'm not sure, but that's what I read. But it's unusual. Most countries last. I mean, what's this 100 years war between France and England? Lasted 116 years. How come it lasted more than one? France fell in five day, uh, weeks. In England, at the same time, Churchill said, Churchill offered to incorporate France and Britain together several times in May and June to have a common citizenship, as he did here at the Iron Heart speech, too, just to save France, save resistance to it. But he said, after June 22nd, the Battle of France is over, the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Well, the Battle of Britain was an air battle over the skies of the cities. Why didn't the Brits surrender? No, at one time in the Blitz, the Air Blitz, on 76 consecutive occasions, the Luftwaffe dropped bombs over London and other cities 76 times in a row at night, with over 50,000 fatalities. It didn't surrender. Where was Francis Churchill? Why did the British hold on during that terrible period? which lasted over a year. How would we like to go through 76 consecutive 9-11s? Well, that's what they did. They had as many as 800 to 1,000 planes over all the English cities at any given night. 800 planes over your city. Stay calm and what was the expression? 
stay calm and carry on. They didn't surrender. Why, why friends? Russia, especially in World War II, 20, 20 million casualties, conservative estimates of the Soviet Union, and the Germans were within eyesight to Moscow. The United States surrender after Pearl Harbor. And in Vietnam itself, if I have to say, the Vietnam War began over there in the 1920s with Ho Chi Minh. They lasted through the French period, the American period, and took over the country in 1975. How come they didn't give up in 1940 or 45 against the Japanese? Well, I don't have the answers, but I, you may have. That's the question. They lasted for half a century. Well, this is a very uh, complicated situation, but it is real, and the answer is, again, I believe, internally derived. Let me give you some quotes about some of the great French leaders just to give you an indication of the beginning of the lack of morale as the war ended, 1918, <coughs> First World War. <sighs> These are prophetic. They're all from French officials, the highest officials. <clears throat> Referring to the Treaty of Versailles, which prompted France and just devastated the Germans. The Germans weren't there to negotiate the treaty. Hitler was right, it was a dictated treaty. From January to June 28th, they negotiated the treaty. The Germans were there for the signing. And then they had to take it home. They signed. This is not a peace. It's an armistice for 20 years, 1919. General Ferdinand Foch, F-O-C-H, the leader of the French during the war. He predicted to the year that it was absurd. This is a commentary he made at the time, 1918, which is a sort of a reflection on the quality of the French. France, victorious, must grow accustomed to being a lesser power than France, vanquished. So be careful of what you have and don't get too uh, carried away with it. You're better off, you know, with a little less, uh, more of a stable balance. It was said by one of the great diplomats, the ambassador to Berlin uh, before the war, Jules Cambon, C-A-M-B-O-N, and his brother was two of the greatest diplomats and head of the foreign office. France, the way it is right now, is a warning. In 1922, the great French and said this, everything I've done has been wasted. In 20 years, France will be dead. 1922, George Clemenceau, the 
Tiger, who engineered the Versailles Treaty, who led France through the war. 20 years, France will be dead. Both his top military leader and his top political leader predicted the end of France almost to the day. Here. Finally, I have the quote of another Frenchman. The French ambassador in 2015, I think it was the predecessor to the current ambassador, wrote an article I got in preparation. The foreign policy of France between 1919 and 1939, the reasons for its descent into hell. Here's his conclusion. The French backbone had been broken between Verdun and Versailles, which you know, highlights the theme I'm bringing up that the First World War not only devastated the world and turned everybody almost upside down, but it was the, the core reason for everything but the core reason for why France victorious fell so quickly, so soon. Here is one political, I call this a killer fact, uh, which by itself can go a long way towards explaining the instability, the insecurity, uh, the low morale of the French during the 20-year armistice. During this time period, France experienced 37 governments, 37 changes of government. That's, that's almost two a year. But that's political instability for any democracy. How about the rest of the world? How many governments did they entertain? The United States entertained two. Republicans and Roosevelt, 1920s, 1930s. Everything is divided up into those two decades. The 1930s are critical, the 1920s are prelude, just like the band playing before the actors. Germany, two, Weimar Republic, and Nazis, two governments. Japan, two, civilians and the army, 1920s, 1930s. England. England won appeasement. Ramsey MacDonald, Stanley Baldwin, Neville Chamberlain, they all said the same thing. You know, I used to think that appeasement was a derogatory term that was invented by us to blame Chamberlain at Munich. No, it was, as I found out later, it was an open and proud description very proudly given that they deliberately pursued appeasement. And it was supported by the government, except for Churchill and his little backbenchers. Appeasement was the policy, and they were proud of it. Nobody wanted to repeat the, Second, the First World War, especially the Nazis. But they did something about it. Uh, Let me give you a uh, description by William L. Shire. There's some excellent books about, maybe a handful of books. This one I use, uh, the great, probably the greatest correspondent in history, William L. Shire, famous for the rise and fall of the Third Reich, but also 
the collapse of the, of the uh, Third Republic. Also, Alistair Horn, H-O-R-N-E, died two years ago. He had a trilogy on German-French relations. Magnificent. He was William Buckley's closest friend. His name was Alistair Horn. He and Buckley went to uh, school together during the Second World War at a boarding school. He came over from England. He was rich, too. And this one here, plus some others, but there's not that many. What's it like to have a government that changes every other day? This is what Shire said about the change of government. Permit me to, to quote, uh, I don't want to be too long or too boring. In Paris, there was, again, a cascade of ministries of the right and left. None of them remained in office long enough to cope with the unfolding crisis. Through the elections of 1928, though the elections of 1928 had returned a conservative chamber, and those of 32, a radical one, there was no stable parliamentary majority for any policy or any cabinet, and the chamber or the Senate massacred governments at the slightest pretext. Five cabinets were overthrown in 17 months, following the resignation of Poincaier in July 29. Between June 32 and February 1934, six governments came and went, lasting an average of three months. January 30th, 1933, well, I, I, and the class atmosphere of France, which came sort of as a surprise to me, the class, the, the class was so dominant in the French society, it was what, yeah, I'm not French, and I'm Visited, I don't know it uh, deeply. I don't speak it. My, my daughter majored in French, but uh, I, I don't know. But it, it was really a deeply uh, ossified society. Uh, and I use this as a example. Uh, they tried to, and there was a lot of left wing for the Popular Front of the mid thirties trying to. You know, uh, socialize, socialize the country. France had its, <clears throat> well, I, I guess you'd call it a Red New Deal, really. If you want to use colors, which is apparently quite fashionable today. My favorite color was green. I'm Irish. And they uh, established a committee to insist on taxation, deep taxation. This is the report by the head of the committee, a professor, according to William Shire, Gaston Jerez, an eminent professor of law and no radical who served as the expert committee, as, served as chairman of the committee of experts, named by the government to draw up a plan to restore the state's finances, put his finger on the situation of class in France. Quote, this is the professor, personally, I believe that taxes on acquired wealth would be the fairest solution. Taxes on the wealthy were either non-existent or, or low. But such taxes have met an invincible resistance among the possessors who are the most powerful. That is a fact. The selfishness of the possessing classes is not reducible. We have to adapt to it. So that is a background.
cause to the instability of the country. Two little facts that are kind of ironic, they're more symbolic, <clears throat> and they symbolize the differences between having a terribly fragile country at odds with itself and having a form of stability. The Nazis provided stability. The League of Nations in the 20s gave Germany the Fiamat Republic provided stability. The army provided stability in Japan. France had none. Just two, two little facts that I thought I'd bring up. Hitler came to power as the chancellor on January 30th, 1933. At that point in time, France had no government. It was in between. France had no government. The day Hitler took over. The day the invasion occurred, which was May 10th, 1940, that's when the armies, that's when the, the first day of the Battle of France was done. France had no government. They didn't have any government either. That, you know, a couple days later, the government came in. I just use that as characteristic of, of the situation. Uh, Okay, I'm drawing to a close. What I have, about five minutes, 10, one, two? Dear me, how can you tell about the fall of France in two minutes? <clears throat> the external causes that were derived from the internal instability and morale in France are divided up, and I'll go through this very quickly, into two. One of them is strategic hyphen military, and the other is diplomatic isolation. The military uh, division and the military problems of France can be summed up quite simply. Germany fought World War II, France tried to fight World War I again. Okay, isn't it true that the generals always fight the last war? But not the Nazis, they fought a brand new war based on mobilization and blitzkrieg and tanks and airplanes and so forth. France had them, but they didn't maneuver them right. They didn't, uh, I'm not a, a military officer, so I won't go into it, but I think that it said that the two symbolic uh, differences in the military is the difference between a dive bomber and the Maginot Line, uh, and, or the tank, and the artillery in the Maginot Line, which was constructed in 1930. The Germans went through the Ardennes Forest, they went through Belgium and the Low Countries, they went around the Maginot Line and they went over it. That's my military assessment. Uh, if I can just quickly quote one more. I think it's interesting. See, I just got this topic. In 1936, another committee was, exam was examined the French strategic situation against Hitler, and it concluded, despite technological advances made in weapons, the conclusion was, quote, the committee, which has drawn up the present instructions, does not believe that this technical progress sensibly modifies the essential rules hitherto established in the domain of tactics. 
Consequently, it believes that the doctrine objectively fixed at the end of the last war, 1918, uh, the eminent chiefs who had held high commands must remain the charter for the tactical employment of large armies. They pick up to where they left off. A parliamentary committee after the war was over made this conclusion about France's military preparedness. <clears throat> Quote, our strategists were little more than bookworms in the library, sheltering their insufficiencies behind precedents. Precedence, 1918. They had made of the Ministry of War, the War Council, the General Staff, gigantic machines for the plethoric Central services reigned amid mountains of paper. The general staff, convinced of its infallibility, made the defense of its prejudices and prerogatives the essence of its action. Having retired to its own Sinai, that means among its revealed truths and the vestiges of its vanquished glory, it lived on the margin of events, devoting all of its efforts to patch up an organization which had been superseded already by the facts. That was in retrospect. And in 1935, a general of the uh, French, whose name is unfamiliar to me and it will be to you, made this statement about the marginal line and the uh, posture and position of France in the interwar period. Quote, how can anyone believe that we are still thinking of the offense when we have spent so many billions to establish a fortified frontier? Should we be mad enough to advance beyond this barrier? I don't know what sort of adventure we could undertake. That's the First World War. Okay. It's, it's it's a product of the of the of the war. It's a product of the mentality of the war. Okay. In conclusion, the diplomatic isolation of the French from 1919 to 39 was simply universal. Even though they inherited the, the, the seeds of victory, they inherited the Versailles Treaty. They occupied with Belgium. The Ruhr Valley, from 1923 to 1930, seven years in occupation of the heartland of Germany. They were still diplomatically isolated. The United States, which won the war, retreated into normalcy with the Republicans in neutrality in the 1930s. The United States was gone as the ally. Britain. I don't have it here, but the classic work on the disparity between British and French views on the war, the post-war, was written in 1940 by Arnold Wolfers, professor at sites, called Britain and France Between Two Wars. Britain had a completely opposite viewpoint of the duties and nature of the Versailles Treaty and basically refused to enforce it. France depended on it. By the way, the the actual harsh terms of the 
precisely, including the war guilt clause, reparations clause, were aided and abetted by an American diplomat assigned to Wilson's staff named, you go to his airport, John Foster Dulles, who wrote a lot of the uh, reparations. Next time you bore a plane down there, you remember? That's where it started. Britain, right from the beginning, went to appeasement. It's associated in 1938 with Chamberlain. It started in 1919. It wove through Churchill's complaints about it go back to the 30s, the early 30s. He was a bitter opponent of appeasement. If I can tell a little story about Churchill just to show him, show his views. Stanley Baldwin was, and the whole House of Commons was very, very active and, and behind appeasement. <clears throat> One day in 35, and Churchill was always quarreling with him and his group. In 1935, Stanley Baldwin became deathly ill. He was taken apart to the hospital and it didn't, it didn't seem like he would live. The whole House of Commons devoted an entire afternoon to what to do if the Prime Minister dies. And they all got up in row and they said, we have to carry on his policies. We have to see that his shoes are filled and the appeasement continues. We have to stay out of war. Finally, at the end of it, Churchill was asked to speak. He was an opponent about Baldwin, so he got up and he said the following. Members of the House have taken on the opportunity to discuss the situation should the Prime Minister die. Here's what we should do. First of all, we should embalm him. Then we should bury him. Then we should cremate him. Take no chances. <laughs> He's pretty funny. So, Russia, Russia went out of the war in 1918 in March. It was, so the, the top three allies during the war, USA, Britain, and Russia were gone for different reasons. France was left alone with Belgium. So what did it do? It established in the 1920s alliances with a group in the East Europe called the Little Entente, consisting of Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and Romania. That was their alternative. It established a treaty of alliance with Belgium. And in 1935, it established a treaty of mutual aid and alliance with the Soviet, with Stalin, Soviet Union. That's what it depended upon its alliances for not very uh, healthy, while well, Britain and America, and even the 1935 treaty with Russia was very heavily qualified. The threat had to be endorsed by the United, by the League of Nations and everything. It was a very poor So, the end, the end is near. <clears throat> the actual end of France came on March 7th, 1936, when the German army crossed the ridge into the Rhineland in direct violation, of course, Hitler had been violating the treaty before, but only internally. This time he did it by occupying the Rhineland with instructions for the German army to, to retreat should they receive any resistance. If a soldier 
pulled a gun, shot a German soldier, they'd go home. That was the instruction. France did nothing. In 1937, next year, Belgium <coughs> tore up the Treaty of Alliance with France. It abrogated it. They didn't have Belgium. Now, in 1938 came the, the Union with Austria called the Anschluss. It's just all downhill. In 1939, the last year of peace, France signed the Munich Agreement. He signed an agreement that he had, because uh, Czechoslovakia was part of the uh, Entente. It participated in the dismemberment of the country. August 23rd, 1939, Nazi-Soviet pact. There goes Russia. Russia and Germany started the Second World War together. And they stayed allies for almost two years. They carved up Poland. September 1st in Germany, September 7th, 17th, I mean, uh, Russia, and September 1st, the invasion of Poland, then the phony war, then the attack. Here's the summary, and I'm finished. By Bill Shire. This is his, I use it as a conclusion, it's in the middle of his book, but I think it will summarize why France fell. The surrender at Munich further expressed the growing weaknesses of the Third Republic. The government, the parliament, the army, the press, we call them media, but they didn't have any electronic, they were press. The people drew back on the brink from honoring the nation's word and from standing up to Hitler. The French, paralyzed by the fear of war, mindful that the last one against Germany had bled them white, 1.5 million soldiers dead. Several times that figure, by far the largest uh, casualties of the entire war. The Americans suffered 50,000 dead in the war, 50,000 dead by influenza, 110,000. Lost track of the long-range interests of the country and sacrificing these for immediate gains or what they thought were such, though this was an illusion. Gripped by paralysis, they were unable to assess their own strength and even more important, the strength of the coalition that might have allied the Western democracies with Russia and the smaller states in the East for a long time. The combination powerful enough to destroy the aggressive ambitions of Nazi Germany. To be sure, Great Britain had suffered, suffered similar blindness to its long-term national interests and was equally fearful of war and of Hitler had brought, as it had at the time of the Rhineland in 1936, much pressure on France to join her in giving in. Britain was co-conspirator. But a great nation must stand on its own feet if it is to survive. Since 1936, France had advocated its independence in foreign policy, subordinated it to Great Britain. On the road to Munich, it was Britain that called the tune in making one concession after the other to Hitler, cajoling France into following her disastrous lead. So, at the final analysis, it's the Great War that was. As Foch said, it was an armistice. It was like the second 
the great the, the second war was act two of the entire uh, horrible program. I, I just wonder, just, I don't have any comparisons to make about America, only that it seems so ironic that we are discussing the drinking habits of a Supreme Court nominee when he was 16, when these people in our generation were discussing whether or not their country was going to live or not in the next week. I'm not sure I don't know what that means, but that's a subject for another time. I'm finished. Do you recommend that we invade France? Do you recommend that we invade France? Hmm. I think it's been done. It's just, uh, I think we're just going back over. Do you like their muscles? Yeah. I'm a Franco. <laughs> we invade, we should invade somebody. You mentioned uh, a League of Nations. League of Nations turned into the uh, United Nations. Do you think it's obsolete or uh, outliving its purpose? What? The United Nations? Yeah. Hmm. What is its purpose? I'm sorry? What's its purpose? Why was it made? That's my question. If it, if it outlived its purpose, what was it? It was not 1945. Okay, let's say if its purpose was to end war and unite the countries, it, it, its purpose was already dead by the time it, it started. It's like a stillborn uh, child. Born dead. What is its purpose now? It hasn't outlived its purpose since 1946, because it was, you know, its it, its purpose has to be uh, lowered considerably in order to uh, give it some you know, some purpose, some kind of. Uh, you know, it's been around for 70 years, so it must be serving a whole series of purposes. But I believe. If you look at the original expectations mm -hmm. of it, mm -hmm. which it was supposed to be like the League, a collective security body, the original theoretical purpose mm -hmm. was never allowed to be, con to, was conceived but never born. Does that make sense? I, in other words, in terms of its theoretical purpose, it's irrelevant. In terms of many lesser purposes, I'm speaking about an organization that has 190 members. Am I, am I going to say anything about it that has any bearing? I don't know. I, if it goes tomorrow, I don't care. But I wouldn't advocate it. Yes? So, Professor, my take from your speech is that you need to have stability, strong central government, but having allies is very important too. How does that relate to us today in 2018-2019 going forward for the United States? That's a subject of a whole panel. How does it relate? Well, since 1945, what were your categories? Strong allies? Okay, we have them. 
What's the other one? Political stability. Political stability. We have it. What else? Historical literacy. Historical literacy, we know we don't have that. We, we have political stability. I don't care what the pundits say or what the president says. We have political stability. We have 250 years of it. Democracy dies in darkness. I mean, fine. Who's, who's dimming the bulbs? Uh, I'm not worried about the democratic future of the country myself. I don't think Russia can do what uh, uh, Stalin couldn't do, or Hitler couldn't do, or Robert Lee couldn't do. Or, but if it so happens that I'm wrong, then I'll admit it. So far, I see no evidence of. In other words, your question basically is, is the United States like France in 1938? No. Not even close. Is that a good answer? Yeah. What's an answer? It sounds very hopeful that there is, that we have more going right now in the United States than, you know, the condition of France to World War I and World War II. But I think learning about the history of France between World War I and World War II lends us to a kind of insurance policy to be aware in case we get too full of ourselves. I think that warning is appropriate. If I was to look back into history uh, and try to find some kind of a comparison that would be valid for the USA in 2019, I'd have to go into the deep thought uh, to find one. Most people that are critics of the state of the country now say it would be 1860. I have an article in the same website called The Second Civil War, which I wrote last couple months ago. But I don't think it's even, I don't think there's any comparison. I'm not an alarmist. Uh, I'm more of a uh, conservative, traditional-oriented mind. I don't see anything on the horizon that would be threatening, that hasn't been overcome many times in the past. But I'm, I'm sensitive enough to realize that I'm susceptible to being overly, overly wrong. Is that possible to be overly wrong? That's all, folks. <laughs>